Welcome to One Weird Trick, a podcast giving advice for better living. Your hosts, Aaron and Cecily, have zero legal, medical, or psychological qualifications to give advice. Please consider any advice you receive from them as being from well-meaning, but human and imperfect friends. Please consult actual professionals for any serious legal, medical, or mental help you may need. And now, here's Cecily and Aaron. Welcome back to One Weird Trick on the other side of the apocalypse. We are here still. <laughs> oh, we're ever we're, vigilant. We're we're still on the wrong side. Don't don't you worry about it. <laughs> yeah. I said the other side, not the right side of the any apocalypse. <laughs> uh we've got a couple of things to talk about today. Uh Aaron's going to fill us in on three more types of reply guys based on listener feedback. Wanting to hear more about those. And I am going to introduce you, maybe if you haven't heard of it before, uh, introduce into your life the concept of despair as an art form. It's been like my Twitter feed for the last six, seven days. Yeah, I think it's everyone's Twitter feed. Three, four years, if for I'm the being next honest. few months. But it's really, really had an acute uh, spike in uh, uh, fatalism and nihilism uh, in the last few days for sure. Well, let's get started with the first topic. Um, even more reply guys. And we talked about this last week. I, I just was going to do the kind of the, the mild, the benign forms of, of reply guys. But there was a sufficient interest and enough people wrote on our subreddits and an email for me to continue the series. Uh, so these are the nine types of reply guys. And uh, these are not necessarily men because women can absolutely be reply guys, too. But this research was pioneered by men and women in the STEM fields that were finding just loads of people, mostly guys, and their social media mentions taking issues with their research and their work and generally just being condescending and talking down to them. And when I say them, I'm talking about PhDs with years of lab and research and education experience. And when I say people and their mentions, I'm talking about guys that read that one wired subject on the article in question and... uh um, and people noticed that 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 trend. So last week we considered three relatively benign types of replies, guys, the life coach, the cookie manster, the mansplainer. And they weren't really bad guys. I mean, as I talked about a hell, I've been those reply guys a time or two. This week, we're going to be talking about the, the morally gray reply guys. These are the uh, the Kyle Katarns to the Luke Skywalkers and Darth Vader's of, of reply guys, uh, the tone police. Empathy and the prestige. So last week's guys are in the category of people that mean well. These guys are all, all about focusing the quote unquote real problems. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're talking about, that's not the core issue. Let's talk about the real problems that we're just kind of hinting about. And as always, um, you know, if you identify with any of these reply guys, uh, whether you're a, a man or woman, number one, don't despair. There's no there's there's never any classes. I didn't take any classes anyway growing up on how not to denigrate others on social media. Um, And also um, the remedy is very easy. You in almost every case uh, to stop being a reply guy. All you got to do is stop replying and start listening. Hmm. You don't have to listen uncritically like you don't have to believe uh, and internalize everything that you hear. But do listen and listen to a variety of different perspectives so you get a whole picture because I, I something I've been thinking about when we're talking about these issues and why people get defensive and upset about them is that, you know, when I grew up, I read a lot of books. I actually I was a voracious reader. But when I think about it, 
they were almost universally written from a, by a man from a male perspective. Like if it weren't for Harper Lee and Madeline Lingle, is yeah how you pronounce Lingle? <laughs> yeah, I think that's got to be right. <laughs> uh, I'd have made adult, adulthood without reading a single book by a woman. All the what? books I read, only those two that I can remember are you know uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and. It's wrinkle in time, wrinkle, wrinkle in time. time. And and honestly, <laughs> if it hadn't been for Ralph Ellison and the Invisible Man, I'd, I'd have made it to adulthood without reading a book by any kind of black author, too. And, and these were books that I didn't just like see on a bookshelf and be like, oh, I think I'll read that. These were books I was forced to read at some point in my scholastic career. So my, my point is, it's maybe you can think back into your upbringing and think about how many broad perspectives you had growing up. But for me, I think... <laughs> you can't call women that. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get the broad perspective. The perspective of the broads. Thanks for pointing that out for me there, Dame. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly hard to be empathetic to other people's point of view when you've never had to question your own uh, or consider something from someone else's perspective. So again, don't feel any shame if you recognize yourself in some of these. Without further ado, let's talk about these, these three uh, gray Jedi type of uh, reply guys. N- number one, the tone police. Whatever issues you're discussing, he knows that your attitude is the real problem here. Hashtag civility. Can we get some civility here? This is uh, the guy that would tell you to smile on the street. Maybe. Uh, he definitely would say something. Um, uh, so imagine this is a tweet about a woman talking about something in her profession, um, like maybe sexism, rampant sexism in a STEM field. A uh, reply might be, how rude. Now we must p- postpone all discussion of your experiences until you can make me feel comfortable with the discussion. Or you seem upset. Perhaps you aren't able to handle rational discourse. Mm. If you get angry, they win. Look at the mouth on you. No wonder you're getting harassed. (laughs) Name calling is hardly productive, madam. Look, piling on this guy isn't helpful. I bet he learned his lesson and he's probably just misunderstood. Such nasty vitriol. All I did was calmly point out that women are irrational and unfit to do science. Uh, This guy's also known as the civility patrol or oh, my delicate male ears. The problem is they're putting male comfort as priority number one. Uh, the warning for this reply guy is he will call you a bitch eventually. And uh, <laughs> of, of course, what uh, he should do is stop replying, start listening. Um, I don't know that I have to point out like where the person's going wrong here. Um, a lot of times like this, how rude we must postpone all discussion of your experiences until you can make me feel comfortable. A lot of times uh, when men hear a problem that women are having, especially if it's uh, maybe a problem in a field they're related to, is it makes them feel like they're being attacked specifically. Um, or maybe they've engaged in some kind of borderline behavior, maybe some over-the-border type behavior, and they're uncomfortable, and they want everyone to kind of pet them and reassure them. But in reality, these are just women talking about their problems, and they don't really want to take a time out of dealing with their trauma and their distress to deal with yours so they're in the center of that ring yeah also like if you get angry they win that's actually broadly true it's very rarely that an impassioned uh 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 outrage take influences and change people's minds but that's presupposing that everything that's posted on the internet is explicitly aimed to convince a man of something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes women are venting. Sometimes women are really raw and angry and they're wanting other people to hear them and validate those experiences. They're not necessarily trying to pray thee, sir, consider consider the rights that you're trampling <laughs> me at, at the moment. 
Um, then you've also got like the math on you. No wonder you get harassed. That's straight up victim blaming. Um, you know, so I think this is this is a pretty easy one to understand. Uh, but tone policing is also something I've done. Like when I was pretty new to the social justice area, many times I weighed in and see people like what I was doing, what I was considering unproductive in public airing of grievances and lawn and like I would agree with them but I'm like you know is this is this, is this the best way storming the Bastille is this the best reaction or should we be more calm and collected about it and I got trounced because again not every communication on the internet in public is about trying to convince people sometimes it's about just complaining and, and being heard so let's move on to the other type uh, the next type empathy. Uh, this person is worried that with all this hashtag me Too talk, we're losing sight of the real victims, him and his friends, <laughs> hashtag empathy, hashtag dude process. Uh, some examples here are too many professors are being uh, fired due to um, unsubstantiated rumors with no due tr- process. No, I can't name any. Uh, if we start holding men responsible for their actions, where will it end? She's just claiming harassment to get ahead and he is suffering for it. We can't start protecting women until you can prove that nothing bad will ever happen to a man ever. Uh, I'm afraid to work with women now. Frowny face. He's really going through a lot and the rules are changing. It's very hard out there. Um, Censorship. Why can't I say whatever comes to my mind without everyone walking on eggshells around me? Uh, Finally, if you keep this up, men will stop hitting on women at work and the human race will go extinct. Uh, (laughs) So Kate Maine, um, author of Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, pointed out that um, th- it was the first to coin this phrase, empathy. And she said it's a flow. It's directing the flow of sympathy away from female v- victims and towards their male victimizers. Um, these guys are also known as witch hunters. Uh, uh, what about and oh, the humanity and their core problem, according to the reply guy analyzers, is that they Uh, that they only see men as being real. Like they literally can't see outside of a male perspective. Uh, And the warning is that they're dangerous when cornered. So I I thought like we could go through and um, the fact that too many professors or you can insert, you know, authors, scientists, uh, producers, directors are being fired due to unsubstantiated rumors with no due process. Um, This will absolutely happen from time to time. You will get false allegations. You will get vindictive people trying to ruin someone's career. But anytime you level this attack, do some research and see, you know, how prevalent this is, how many like, you know, how seriously is this problem being taken? Um, Because like in the case of like, you know, like, like rape. The amount of rapes that go unreported and unprosecuted dwarf the number, and every piece of research bears this out, of the rate rate of, of, of false rape applica- uh, accusations. So while that is a problem, it's not nearly as big in sc- as scope as the actual problem of rape itself. And harassment at work is another one of those situations. Way more. I've talked to way more women that excuse, not excuse, but like don't do anything about harassment because they're not sure if it was actually harassment or man, this guy's got kids. I don't want to get their career. Fi- I, you know, it might be bad for my career. Mm-hmm. A lot more of that's happening than women are just willy nilly accusing men. Right. Um, 
And the fact that like, you know, the women just claiming harassment to get ahead. That's not how this works. Like the women that come forward, especially the first ones in any of their career field that talk about this harassment, almost universally get shit on and lose their positions, Mm -hmm. lose their prestige, lose their research grants, lose their opportunities to direct their next film or star in the next film. Mm -hmm. It's it's Mm -hmm. it's not a success strategy at all. Um, And then, you know, guys that say, well, I'm afraid to work with women now welcome to a woman's world like mm-hmm. this has been going on for 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 decades and centuries and yet they've been willing to enter the work uh, workplace with us potential predators and maybe you maybe be upon. yeah yeah maybe you can you can you take that f- fear and tear it at your feeling and apply it to the mirror and see like what a shitty situation we've engineered for ourselves mm-hmm. and use that as a as a conduit for empathy i don't know uh and there's like other things that are true like you know the fact that rules are changing it's absolutely true in the last 40 years what we consider harassment what we consider uh sexual assault what we consider rape has changed definitionally i mean you look at like 70s and 80s comedies versus today a lot of progress has been made but that still doesn't mean those guys were doing things are okay it's just those are things that we swept under the rug Mm -hmm. so uh that's the empathy and then finally the prestige uh, the dis- description text for this reply, guys, your career is just a mere speed bump on a great man's road to even greater greatness. Uh, examples of this are, but if we hold this man accountable for his actions, his legacy of being being given awards will be destroyed. Uh, also, he's essential to his field. He's a genius. I've never even heard of you. Uh, great men can't be shackled by ethics. Uh, we'll talk about that here in a minute. (laughs) Women love to rub their degrees in our faces. It's so tacky. A well-tailored suit tells you everything you know, need to know about my qualifications. Uh, dealing with sexism would distract from my important work. It doesn't affect me and working on it won't impress other men. And also who's complaining? Oh, her eye roll emoji. Uh, AKA the, the prestige is also known as the great man syndrome. Look here, miss and the D list. The problem is your colleagues will often want to impress this person and warning your success won't change his mind. So this, this is actually, I've seen this a a shocking amount of time. Like anytime you bring down, like it's going on with uh, currently going on Woody Allen. You've seen this with, uh, um, Roman uh, Polanski. Roman Polanski. Thank you. I was going with Ronan Fair, and that's not the right one. Roman Polanski. It's like, look at this genius that is so beloved and has done so much important work, and you're tarnishing that leg- legacy by telling us, you know, look at Bill Cosby. He's so beloved. He's such a cultural. He's so important for for you know the image of black people everywhere. How can you possibly, you know? Again, essentially, this person is so great and he's so well beloved that he can't possibly be questioned. That's obviously problematic, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one, great men can't be shackled by ethics. This actually happens a lot. Um, For example, there is a prejudice that like coaches in sports, for example, have to be assholes to get ahead. You know, that you have to grab your players by the shirt. You have to scream at them. You have to yell at them. You have to question their masculinity. I grew up in a state that idolized Bobby Knight, who is one of the most out of control rageaholics you'll ever meet. But because he won a couple of NCAA championships, he can do no wrong. Mm -hmm. And it ignores like examples to the contrary, like Tony Dungy, who's won a Super Bowl and uh, appeared in, and, and won more. And he is, by all accounts, a very mild person who uh, doesn't scream at people, tries to help people out. This this idea that 
the only way you can be a genius is by being a complete asshole and not caring or thinking about other people is one of these myths that needs to die, not just to help women, but to help us all. Yeah. Because we got to stop letting psychopaths run things just because they can shit out some good work or some good art or some good research once in a while. Um, but yeah, so that's the, that's the three reply guys for this week. Again, next week we I, I or the next time i can do another topic uh people are tired about hearing about reply guys because they just get worse from here no you the gotta last do the three last are real three. assholes get around at home we'll see we'll see because next week uh we got the 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 chaotic neutral and lawful evil types of reply guy the gaslighter the sea lion and trolls creeps and fools which oh, those are my favorites <laughs> but but honestly doesn't it sound like they're cheating there's actually like 11 reply guys and yeah. they just fit the last three into the box so they could have that nice three by three grid yeah but you know we'll keep an open mind uh did i just reply guy there a little bit i don't know <laughs> uh maybe find a out little. next week <laughs> <laughs> find out next week uh cecily I want to hear about despair as an art form. Uh, okay, so I've I've noticed that there is a little bit of a resurgence, a renaissance of this early 20th century concept. So you know, right around World War One, uh, this European concept of Dadaism, mm. which is was really an art movement that was a way of rebellion. You know, it was. Uh, well, let me just read the definition to you. A Dada movement consisted of artists who rejected the logic, reason, and aestheticism of modern capitalist society, instead expressing nonsense, irrationality, and anti-bourgeois protest in their works. Mm. So that's where you get arts that is like futurism, cubism, going from like landscapes and realistic things into a lot more of this, you know, outside of the norm. Poetry, uh, collages, things. A lot of those things were kind of born out of this. Uh, but yeah, it's just very, very anti-establishment. You know, the idea was to shock your common sense with absurdity, um, being in love with death, things like that. Which I'm sure you're drawing some similarities with what's happening right now. Uh, I think today. Today's a little bit different because there's more of this defeatist attitude among a lot of the younger generations. I see this in them not voting Mm. and uh, being very, you know, just not really wanting to do much to contribute to changing the climate, for example, because it feels like it's already a lost cause. Mm. So you see like millennials joking about (laughs) getting hit by a bus because if you die, great. If you live, then you can pay off your student loans now. Because <laughs> you get the, the lawsuit, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, you see these same kind of people who can dream. You know, that's why, like, I play The Sims so I can build anything I want and decorate anything I want for, you know, the dream home that your parents had and you'll never get because you live with 12 roommates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um we play Stardew Valley to be control in control of our life and production and making things and seeing things grow before you. Uh, we use Snapchat and Instagram filters to be a different person. Uh, we window shop online. You know, have you ever gone to a website and just filled up your cart but never check out? Right. It's why a lot of younger people dream about getting an old bus 
or a car and renovating it into a mobile home because boom, car and house. And you can dream about going anywhere you want to on any adventure because that's what you saw on Instagram. Uh, so yeah, I don't really have, I don't really have much to say about that. It's just something I noticed. Yeah, it is. Cause I, I've, I've said this a couple of times that like younger generations seem to have like be adopting this, what I would consider like Soviet union, citizen sense of outlook and humor Mm -hmm. which is things are bad they're only going to get worse uh the lucky ones will die the cursed will will be forced to continue to walk the earth in despair um (laughs) and there is a lot of you know that like you know like the the fact that like art form is becoming more and more Mm non-traditional um probably is it has a lot to do with that yeah Um, absolutely the thing is is like i don't know how you turn uh because that's the thing i've been worried uh, that we would be forced to live through the bad parts of the early 21st, the 20th century and the 21st century. I didn't see a plague coming. I didn't see the Spanish influenza coming back. But like, I thought like, yeah, there probably are going to be severe like wars. There's going to be famines and food shortages and resource struggles. I, I, I guess now I need to turn, I need to, to look forward and see like, you know, how that gave way to like New Deal optimism and post-war. Well, how do you turn the corner? How the fuck do you turn the corner? Well, I mean, on that? yeah, just like I was explaining, I think I was telling like you and Jim about this yesterday, but it's, you know, at my age, some of my earliest memories were like 9-11 going into high school yeah, and having this constant fear of terrorism on our, on our lands, uh, anthrax in the mail and mm. just, just so much anxiety. It's just the constant shadow, you know, school shooters. Yeah. They, even within the last year, we've had two major shootings in our state near yeah, us. Yeah. And it's just it's just a lot of fear that we've turned into this dark humor to be able to cope, you know, just like police officers or first yeah. responders do. Yeah. I mean, you've had some some shit generations to be a part of, like the one that grew up uh, during the Spanish influenza World War and then got hit by the Depression. That's pretty bad. Um, the boomers had a pretty bad start being drafted into a useless, destructive foreign war that ground up a hundred thousand lives, uh, us lives. But I think the millennials might be in pole position, especially with this plague now, like, uh, you know, you've, we, the, the, that generation started, got, was born during nine 11, uh, started working during a major recession, uh, is going to try to now start a family during a probably worldwide recession, if not depression, on and, top of this virus, on top mm-hmm. of the fact we're still fighting those destructive wars in, in foreign countries. Um, I And all of our jobs are turning to automation. So there's automation's hitting you. Uh, there's, like you said, the school <laughs> shooting, and it, it's, it's pretty... The wealthier class is going to continue to get wealthier, especially off of this. Maybe I'm starting. I'm starting to wonder if this is going to be the thing that this is going to be the the Great Depression, World Wars that start to have people thinking like, why the fuck are we doing this? Why the fuck are we doing any of this? Why is freedom defined as the ability to work your you work yourself your fingers through the bone for other people's profit? Uh, you know, like what 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 sick definition of freedom and liberty are we even living under right now? Right. Because uh, those are the things that kind of like uh, had people question their reality in the turn of the last century. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (sighs) So that's, I, you know, I wanted to come in here and talk about the coronavirus, but also didn't desperately don't want to, because that's all anyone's talking about and thinking about. We're not experts. There's expert opinion out there. um, That's pretty easy to find. Um, Also, I washed my hair twice. 
<laughs> You've abandoned I, the poo routine? Yeah. Semi-abandoned? Semi-abandoned. I'm, now it's like every seven days I'm going to wash my hair. Okay. All right. Um, And I still haven't found a psychologist. Hmm. We'll keep things. We'll keep things. Uh, keep things posted. I actually went to the doctor and got a couple of things taken care of, and I'm glad it did because now it's uh, good luck seeing a doctor for anything that you're not currently dying of for the next <laughs> six to eight weeks. Good but, luck seeing a doctor for something you're currently dying of, also. Yeah, but uh, he he put me on some uh, high blood pressure medicine that also has some um, anti. Uh, has some anti ADD and anti um, Tourette's anti-ADD. type of uh, stuff, and that that's some things I've been str- I've struggled with throughout my entire life. So it's, it's like having a triple benefit: lower blood pressure, uh, control of impulse, and uh, being able to focus. And and I've been on it for this is my second week, and I'm already seeing. A little bit of uh, quite a bit of benefit, honestly. My sleep's better. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed a little bit improvement in focus. We'll see. Yeah. So, well, let's get into our weird tricks. We had our our weird tricks, which are um, I don't know what is what what would you? I, I, my, my trick wasn't a trick. It was uh, one weird, three weird tricks to not being an asshole on the internet. And yours is uh, one weird trick to scream into the void. <laughs> one week weird trick to repeat history. Yeah, we have a couple of people requesting weird tricks. Uh, you can do so at owt at swizzbold.com. First up. Sister Frenia, I have a situation I think you could offer some advice on dealing with. I really love how open and honest you've been about your journeys with mental health and advocating for others to get help as well, but I'm a bit stuck. I need some help with explaining these issues to children. My sister has a mental illness, schizophrenia, that causes her not to be able to work. She lives with her mom, and her mom watched my kids after school until I or my husband are done with work for the day. My sister is often with my mom after school as well. She's great at taking her medicine and I've never felt her issues would cause a danger to my kids. So I have no problem with my sister being around after school. The kids are in first and third grade and especially my third grader has started asking things like, why doesn't aunt have a job? Is she retired like grandma? Why doesn't she drive? Why does aunt live with grandma? Answers like, well, aunt has some issues or is sick in a way that people can't see or is different really aren't cutting it anymore. Especially that question about why she doesn't drive. No answer seems to be good enough for my daughter on why my sister doesn't drive. In case you're wondering, yes, my sister does express an interest in wanting to work and drive. And while finding the right program with assistance for work is possibly in the cards, I honestly don't ever see her driving. Um, I did not. I was not aware that uh, schizophrenia was a, a problem with driving. I, I'm not. I'm not aware of like you know the, inter- the drug interactions for successful treatment and you know how severe it is. But that was a new one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Cecily, do you got any any weird tricks to explain mental and emotional illnesses to children? Yeah, I mean, I think you're doing a good job in. I have heard the way to explain to children, you know, just like you have an alley on the outside that's invisible on the inside, like you said. Um, but you could, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with giving them, you know, the honest answers. And they're young right now, so maybe it'll be hard to accept. But with, you know, normalizing it and talking about it and continuing to answer those questions, they will understand in time. And, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if you've talked to your sister about how honest you want to be with your children, because I could see them going over to your mom's house and making her uncomfortable, peppering her with questions. Mm, you could probably get ahead of that, though. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. 
um, yeah, I would talk to your sister about how, how she feels, how she would want it explained as well. That's a good, that's a good piece of advice. Always bring, you know, consider, you know, what, what they want you to say. She wants to be a part of the conversation too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to echo what Cecily said. I think you're doing a pretty good job. Um, one way I helped Jack understand a kid who had autism that he was hanging out with. Uh, and I, I actually try to do this a lot is like building an analogy. Cause like when you explain women's issues to men and it's completely outside their frame of reference, the first thing is you have to get them to connect with why this material, like, like you have to get them to personally connect with what you're trying to explain. So with Jack, I would say, you know, and he was like six or seven, probably in third grade range. Um, maybe I guess a little bit younger, but I'd say like, you know, buddy, you know, how sometimes when you're tired, you're tired because he'd had the interactions, with this kid that was confusing. And he's like, does this kid not like me? Or is like, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, sometimes when you're tired or you're not feeling well or you're hungry, you sometimes get in the mood and you don't act like yourself. Uh, you might cry or yell or be hard to deal with. Well, your buddy has that issue uh, that makes him has an issue uh, and it makes him feel like that a lot. And uh I was able to help him understand that just because this guy might act in a bizarre way uh, doesn't mean he doesn't want to be your friend. Doesn't it just he's got this thing that he's dealing with that makes him, you know, a little, a little bit hard to deal with at times. And I think with kids, it's not important to be like medically accurate because you always have to pitch things at their level of understanding. It's more about getting them to understand things on an empathetic level because there's plenty of time to like correct their factual takes you know like like you know when they're really ready to explore explore what like having schizophrenia means and what the medication does and all that kind of stuff but like so i did because i don't understand why your why your sister can't drive i don't know how i would analogize that to a kid but like you know um if your aunt was blind like you know you might say like a person who's blind has can't drive a car can't operate a car and like do you know why and the kid probably be like well duh they can't see mm-hmm. um you can say like well you know aunt so-and-so has a condition where sometimes she just zones out like sure her you know she disassociates i don't know how you'd explain disassociate sometimes her mind kind of disconnects from where she has and if imagine if you just kind of like zoned out while you're driving on a busy road people could get hurt maybe the aunt could get hurt um, so try to get them to, to understand there are limitations that we can see, like, or a person that doesn't have arms. That's maybe a bad example. See, that, that's like technically correct. A person without arms actually <laughs> has prosthetics that they can use to drive. Right. I've seen it. But a kid doesn't need to know that. And you can always address that. But like complicates it more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like people don't have feet, can't drive. Why? Because they can't touch the pedals. Not literally true, but it might help them to understand that there's differences that can help people uh, not be able to drive physically. And there might be some mental or emotional. Maybe in other ways to say there's the mental reasons and maybe there's emotional. Like imagine a person because this is a true thing. Sometimes people get in a bad wreck. And they're so traumatized that any like if a horn goes off or something, they they throw their hands up, they take their hands off the wheel and they can't drive until they have that issue corrected. And it's the same thing with Auntie. Um, just try to help them understand the things that could keep a person from not driving a car and then make an analogy towards your sister and see if that can help. Because that's what you're just trying to get them to understand um, and and you can always come up with the exceptions and, and help them fully be woke uh, <laughs> yeah. as they grow up and get older. Or you could gaslight your children. Tell them 
that your aunt died in a fire 20 years ago and that the they think that they're seeing a ghost walking around your mom's house <laughs> they're just a ghost ghost can't drive their ste- <laughs> the hands just go through the steering wheel yeah. well, you know there's lots of options yeah it's not important to be factually accurate you just want to to be scared of your aunt or their aunt so they don't ask too many uncomfortable questions mm-hmm. That's that's a very weird trick. That is a weird trick. Try that out. See see and let us know how that goes. All right. Who's next? I am next with someone named Forrest. I really enjoyed your discussion on your last episode on ring theory. Well, thank you. I have been trying to focus on the best way to give advice as my position at work has made me a de facto counselor. Not a week goes by when I don't have someone come into my office to discuss a personal issue they have. Sometimes it's something I've never had to experience. For example, I had three employees in their teens, early 20s who were experiencing a threat of homelessness. That's that uh, younger generation's boundless optimism at work. (laughs) Get them together. They can afford one place together, maybe. Yeah. They can afford a car car to all live in. (laughs) Other times it's something that has shaped my life, like dealing with a loved one who's struggling with addiction mourning a loss of a parent, or even applying to college at my alma mater. Luckily, my company has realized that my position, which in title is about running retail operations to make a profit, has turned into so much more and constantly provides training. One weird trick that has really helped me listen and empathize when talking about my experiences is thinking about surviving a two-seater plane crash with a person I'm talking to. I like them analogies. Even though we were sitting right next to each other, experiencing the same thing at the same time, we could not say to each other, I understand exactly how you feel. How we feel is shaped by our personally lived experiences and internal mechanics so that no two people experience things the same way. If I need an additional reminder, I think about the vastly different way our mother's death affected my sister and I. This has gotten me to refrain from immediately jumping in to talk about my experiences and start conversations by saying things like, that sounds incredibly hard, or I can't even imagine what you're going through. Yeah, I mean, my dad simulated uh, plane crashes with all of uh, my brothers and sisters. Like, we were ready. Like, you know, this is something that was important to him. Uh, he built us a cardboard box. He shoved us out of a three-story tree. We had to embrace. So we were, we would be ready. Like, <laughs> theoretically, sitting next to a person, you know, and we're going down there screaming. I'd be like, oh, this must be hard for you. Because, you know. It's, was your dad ever in the plane box? My dad. Oh, well, see, that's, that's, that's his Navy training. They, <laughs> he had to, you know, roll down some improbable roller coaster thing and some kind of mock cockpit and into water and roll upside down and cut him. I don't know. Some kind of naval corpsman <laughs> bullshit in Vietnam. But uh, wanted all of us to experience that. Hmm. Did you learn anything? I learned how to be condescending to other people in the middle of a plane cr- crash. Yes. Cool. <laughs> Another weird trick that Forrest has is I've learned when I do have to dispense advice is to see people and their problems like I see trees. Hence the name. You see what I did there? Mm. Often when I get an employee in my office to talk about a personal issue, it's because it started affecting their performance in a negative way and I'm trying to help them stay on the right track to keep their job. I can try and help tend to their leaves and branches and trunks. The things I can see, such as if you're having trouble getting to work on time, how can I help adjust your availability? However, if they confide that the reason they're having trouble getting to work is because they just can't get out of bed due to anxiety or depression, my empathy only goes so far. I can't see or tend to their roots because I don't have the training to help them. In that case, I can refer them to company resources, including five free counseling sessions. 
I can give them time on the clock to call and schedule. I can tell them anonymous success stories I have witnessed from other employees who have gotten help and try to encourage them to move past stigmas of mental health by saying things like, if you had diabetes, do you think you could just will your insulin levels back to normal? Seeing things this way has allowed me to be a more efficient caregiver in my role as I've stopped trying to be the end-all be-all solution and research resources to help from low-cost free clinics in the community to apartment locators to ways to have our company help pay for college. That sounds great. Like you're doing really important work here, Forrest. Yeah. In fact, uh, it's important to note that we all have our limits. I think that's something important to talk about. We've talked about the concept of enlightened selfishness, that oh. you have to strap your own oxygen mask to your face before you can strap others on. Uh, and it sounds like people are really drawn from your well there. So you need to make sure that you keep yourself, um, you know, you do, you, you self-care is very important. Take care of yourself because it can be really draining dealing with other people's problems uh, mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, depression and neurosis run rampant through therapists for probably that reason. It's, it's probably a combined thing uh, that people that struggle with those things are motivated to seek out solutions and answers and educate themselves and once thus armed want to help other people. Um, and also because, yes, it's just incredibly draining dealing with people's problems all the damn time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so make sure you're, you're taking care of yourself. And um, I'm glad that you have those boundaries where it's like you recognize where your limitations are and where it's like i die you know because mm-hmm. uh, sometimes like people come to me with problems and that's i die i don't uh, i don't know you know uh i don't have any experience with it that is so far outside my envelope that other than saying that must be really hard or that sucks or i can't believe this is yeah that you're having to deal with this there's not much i can say yeah i mean nobody's having resources for them to find help is great i I think you're doing great by just listening, like you said. Um, yeah, no one expects you to solve their problems. I think that kind of goes back to the re- reply guy thing. Yeah, just listening, especially you know if it's a diabetic or someone who's having this depression or anxiety, there isn't something that can just fix it. But I like that we're living in a time where those things are more acceptable. Yeah, to be able to call in and take mental health days. Yeah, um, that's that's really great. Yeah, I mean, we're living in an age where people are open to the idea of getting help. Now, the problem of our age is there's not nearly enough help to go around because everyone's asking for it. So uh, it's going to take um, I think it's going to take some time to get our society, at least here in America, whipped into the shape that this is it is easy to get uh, uh, some some help with your mental health as it is to go see a doctor for like uh an ingrown toenail mm-hmm. or, you know, a skin tag or whatever. Not that it's super easy to do that for a lot of people in, in the country, but Mm-mm. I think you, we're, we're working on towards like building that capacity. Um, so yeah, thanks for being that resource to people. I love the, the juice of analogies. I think that's so important um, to not just to help other people understand, but our own, because that, that thing about the two seater airplane, I thought was really brilliant. Yeah. Um, because yeah, like, uh, that's something I struggle with when someone starts to talk to me about something that I've gone through. It's be like, ah, I know this is what helped me. And this is the answer when your child, your, your upbringing was wildly different. Your social circumstances are wildly different. The resources that you have available are always going to be different. It's, it's sometimes a temptation to be a know-it-all and, uh, you can't, you don't, uh, especially when it comes to another thinking, feeling sentient individual. Right. Band-Aid Ripper says, just want to say thanks for doing this podcast. Well, you're welcome. 
After dealing with depression and anxiety for over 20 years, but never seeing a doctor, I decided it was time to broach the subject with my primary care physician. On Tuesday, I made an appointment with my doctor. On Thursday, I met her and she prescribed me some antidepressants. It was quick and painless. I can't believe I waited this long. It's important to mention that Bald Move and Swiss Bold Podcast, along with the most recent season of BoJack Horseman, were in no small way helping me to make uh, start this process. The hardest part was mustering the courage to actually say, I, ha- I think I have depression. After that, it was stupidly easy. Doctor asked me some questions, ordered some blood work, suggested medication. Boom, done. 30 minutes in and out. Anyway, I wanted to thank you, and I wanted to share my story. It never occurred to me that I should mention this to my regular doctor. I always thought I wouldn't would need to go to a psychiatrist. After listening to your podcast, I realized that it shouldn't and isn't that hard. Uh, congratulations. I'm really proud of you for, for taking that step. That is uh, very hard, and, and you did it. And yeah. that's the thing. Like, yeah, anyone out there that has like pretty good medical insurance nowadays or any kind of medical insurance, because I think that that's one of the things that we got from the Obamacare is at least 25 mental health visits a year covered, mm-hmm. I believe, is what the, the minimum coverage is. Maybe it's 24. So if you have any kind of insurance at all, uh, you you have the resources out there to get help, and and it's not necessarily easy. Like I've got pretty good insurance, but you know, as Cecily's talking, uh, our problem here in Ohio is that um, there's just not n- enough people. It seems to be able to take the load, but a lot of people don't un- don't don't realize is that your your primary care physician, um, especially if you're just finding generalized anxiety and depression, there's a couple of like like the equivalent the, the the mental health equivalent of like Tylenol and aspirin and ibuprofen and uh, Aleve that they can just prescribe you and there's like four or five different ones like uh you know Effexor um uh, Lexapro Zoloft Zoloft there's a couple things that and that's very incredible it's it's very effective for a lot of people um you are going to pr- you might find that band-aid ripper that you're entering into the interesting phase of this medication is working but i don't like the side effects so maybe i need to try something else and then you got to wean yourself off of that and then there's a process to even getting those to find out which of those work and of course for severe like you know you've got severe mental illness or anxiety you're probably still going to need this bcp professional just like yeah i went through this exact thing this week too i was trying to connect with a psychiatrist but it turns out I was skipping a step. Mm. So they recommended I talk to my primary care doctor. I went to go see her the next day, which is cool. And right. she prescribed me a new medicine for with a two-month supply so that I could find time to find a psychologist to work on, to have someone to talk to, um, but also someone to diagnose, she said maybe take this oh what's the name of that test my friend said i might have to take that 500 paid or 500 question test i've never heard of this dmt2 or something like that Oh, dsm4 or five yeah something like that i didn't know that that was actually like a a codified test i don't know i'd love to hear from some from anyone listening if they're familiar with that process but talk to a psychologist about just talking and diagnosis and then they would refer you to a psychiatrist who can just work with you on medication if that's something right. that you need to do. Right, right. Uh, so that's that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, but there's, there's a lot of general uh, medications for, for anxiety and depression that are 
effective across a wide range of people, have very mild to low side effects. And if one doesn't work, you can try others because mm-hmm. like everyone's brain chemistry and biochemistry is different. Um, and then, yeah, like you, your general physician, your your uh, your primary care physician can help you with that. And then just like they can, like if, you know, you got a sinus problem, they look up there. Like sometimes they say, hey, you got a sinus <laughs> infection. Here's some antibiotic. Go home. It'll clear up. Sometimes they're like, "Ooh, this is weird. You mm-hmm. need to go to an ENT specialist. There might be some of that on the mental and emotional side, too. But. Yeah. Ladies, your gynecologist can work like your primary care physician. My gynecologist uh, prescribed me some antidepressants, too. Someone you see, I'm more, I see her more than I see my primary care doctor. So mm. that works too. Amazing. Even though your vagina is located over two and a half feet from your head. Yep. I just put the antidepressants right up in there and <laughs> all better. Vaginal suppository uh, for, <laughs> for, ment- for mental health. Yep. Love it. That's how it works. Love it. Uh, <laughs> all right, Band-Aid Ripper. Uh, congratulations. I hope everything goes well. I hope uh, that's the right medicine for you. And, and yeah, and the thing is also like I've heard this happen too, that like people get on something that works for years and years and years and then suddenly it stops working. Um, because like the brain chemistry has changed or adjusted. And so don't, don't ever be discouraged if there's setbacks. This is always a process just like any other recovery is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've done, done an important first step. And I encourage anyone that has insurance um, to, uh, first of all, stay home. Uh, don't go out and see people and get yourself sick. But when all this blows over, be resolved to, to go forth and, and, and get some help if you've been struggling something for a, for a while. If you've been struggling something for over a year, I think it's, it's safe to say you could probably benefit from talking to someone about it, just like yeah. any other medical condition, because yeah. these are medical conditions. Right, exactly. So that's uh, one weird trick for this week. Yep. We, we can be reached at OWT at SwizzBold.com. You can follow us everywhere that is worth following at SwizzBold. Our work here on SwizzBold and on the One Weird Trick is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash SwizzBold. You can join up there and get a lot of benefits, including exclusive access to our monthly live streams. We've had two of those. You can sign up and see those right now, and you can participate uh, at the correct level next month on them. Uh, and also, I'd like to especially thank our Fred tier level supporters, Angela Morano, Mark Hahn, Arvind Rao and Kira Grisho. If anybody else who has a very hard to pronounce name would like to support us at the front level <laughs> and see us trip over their names, do so at patreon.com slash swizzbold. Slash swizzbold. Um, we will see you in two more weeks with more weird tricks. I'll be back next week with another three right turns, also on the Swizzbold Network. Mm-hmm. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Cecily. Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>